let's allow ourselves 10 minutes in the victim mentality. We can all moan about it. Be cathartic. Actually very valuable. The research says very useful to get that out there, clear it out. And then let's remind ourselves that we've been here before. We've got stories where we can actually use the constraints to be to transform our fortunes and make them beautiful. Remind ourselves of those stories. And from that place, it becomes easier to have, you know, what is clearly a very challenging conversation about how to make constraints beautiful. Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkerers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show, we're catching up with Mark Barden, partner at Eat the Big Fish on overcoming beautiful constraints. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman and Bodenfor for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. So Mark, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself, talk a bit about your background, how you came to this topic uh, and the book, and then share your top five tips on how to overcome beautiful constraints. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, Michelle. So Mark Barden, um, originally a Brit. I came over to the US in 1991 as part of that kind of wave. It was quite trendy for a while for agencies to have British planners. I don't think it is anymore, but um, I came over in that wave to work at Widening Kennedy um, in Portland, Oregon on Nike, and then went on to work as the head of planning at Hal Riney um, Partners in San Francisco and start my own ad, ad agency called Black Rocket, and then flipped over into the client side before coming um, on board finally uh, with Eat Big Fish about 20 years ago. Uh, Adam Morgan and I were... Uh, very good friends in the UK. And he was working at Shite Day um, in LA for a while. And we got, we stayed friends and worked together on a, on an APG planning conference, actually. Oh, um, when they had those in the US, they were, they were great for a while. It was a real sort of um, community feel, you know, the planning community was still quite young, relatively speaking back then. And um, yeah, so that's how I came to the States and um, got involved with Adam and Eat Big Fish. Amazing. Um, and I feel like every planner has read Eat the Big Fish. If they shouldn't, if they haven't, they really, really should. <laughs> but we all often talk about challenger brands and it's such a great framework and concept. Um, but talk to us a bit more about Beautiful Constraints and how you came to that. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, Adam wrote um, Eating the Big Fish actually when he was still at Shite Day. And um, it was the first time I think that the phrase challenger brand had been coined and it's subsequently, you know, become part of the marketing lexicon now, very much so. And that um, initial research project that he kicked off at um, Shire has been ongoing for 20-something years now. So we're constantly in and out of challenger brands, either as clients of ours or as part of the research program. We'll go and seek out you know, uh, challenges that we think are really interesting and can teach us something. We interview them and they tell us, Stuff. And one of the things that we've been trying to do for a long time was to write a book. So Adam wrote um, Eating the Big Fish About Challenger Strategy. He then wrote a book called The Pirate Inside that looked at uh, becoming a, a challenger inside a large organization because the challenger mindset is not just about little punky startups. It actually can exist inside large organizations. And increasingly, that's where we get a lot of our work from. And then the third book that we wanted to write was, what's the challenger approach to innovation? And the, we, were, we were looking for a, a long time about, oh, you know, we want to write a book about innovation, but everything's been written. 
And the thing that kept cropping up again and again in the work that we did with clients was the power of things, of constraints, things that ordinarily we would consider to be sort of limitations on our growth and opportunities uh, turned out to be the very thing when we engaged with it that transformed the fortunes of that brand and informed the strategy of that brand. So to make that really concrete, one of the first examples I can remember of, of this was working with Unilever. We had a lot of Unilever business in the early days and we were working on Surf, uh, their value detergent brand. And we arrived in a session with um, the brand team and they'd been given a very big ambition. Everybody had to grow their businesses and Surf had been given some absurd growth target, 20% uh, growth year on year, at the same time as the team recognized that their product performance was subpar. They just didn't clean at the same level as the brand leaders, Tide in particular, in the category. And so they're sitting there with this kind of what we, what we call in the book the victim mentality. How can we grow 20% when our product underperforms? Um, and, you know, understandably, you kind of go, wow, yeah, that is a bit of a head scratcher. Well, let's have a conversation about that. And that turned out to be embracing that constraint and really leaning into and understanding what the possibilities were in it turned out to be the transformation. So we said, well, if we can't compete on cleaning power and performance, let's change the criteria of choice. And it turned out that we could change the criteria of choice around sensory experience of the product. So Unilever is a big perfume house because they have lots of personal care brands. So we started looking at fragrances. We started putting particular inclusions into the product for the first time. So little bits of flower petal. Um, the packaging was redesigned to be re- kind of um, quite psychedelic, multi, uh, multiple colors experience. And it just completely transformed that brand, changed the criteria of choice in the category away from performance to this kind of sensory experience. And it, it transformed that brand and it just took off and it was huge in LATAM. And they, you know, they, the Unilever did a brilliant job of rolling out that idea across every single touch point. So they would paint the bodegas down in, in LATAM with beautiful colors and flower petals and whatnot. It was just hugely transformational. I think that was the first time that we thought, you know, it's interesting because that keeps showing up again and again in the work where the constraint itself turns out to be the impetus for a better outcome, what we now call a beautiful constraint. And so now we've got more deliberate and systematic about looking for the constraints and figuring out how to work productively with them. And that felt like it could be a a contribution to the challenger brand canon, if you like, by writing this book, A Beautiful Constraint and designing processes to make that sort of intuitive response to constraints much more systematic so that it could be replicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting because um, I think as strategists and planners, oftentimes we talk about and look for tension. And to me, mm-hmm. tension is maybe another way of articulating a constraint. And you need something to push off of. Otherwise, it's it's too broad. It's hard. It's easy to kind of just feel like you're floating. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, it's kind of intuitive, I think, for um, agency planners to think this way. I mean, one of the, the pieces of inspiration for this, going all the way back to David Ogilvy, was, you know, give me the freedom of a tight brief. We intuitively 
spend a lot of our time and, and, you know, by our training, I suppose, really focusing creative briefs, really focusing brands down to very simple ideas that in a sense are a constraint that you hand off to the creatives and say, go play with that. We could have given them 99 things to choose from. That would be hopeless. We give them one thing to play with and it actually seems to unlock the creative process. So it's it's a natural way for us to think, I think, as, as planners. And what we're trying to do is expand the canvas, not just for ourselves, but, you know, I'd, I'd love it if the planning community, you know, one of the conversations I've been having with the planning community over recent years is how to get uh, strategists from agencies who are great creative thinkers into larger conversations with their clients about the business problems, not just the communication issue. And a beautiful constraint gives um, planners who are quite skilled already at thinking this way a much more expanded canvas and way to, to engage with clients around around the real issues of their business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess yeah, speaking of canvas, I mean, I know from your book, you have a bit of a, a framework, I guess, and I guess it's it's more six than five, but we can stretch to six if that works better. Uh, you know, I'm just actually just looking at it now, kind of your mindset, method and motivation. Um, mm-hmm. I guess those are the ways to identify uh, these beautiful constraints. Like, can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, well, it's it's actually just about the, the process. I mean, I, you know, just to say the obvious. Um, which is that most of us, ourselves included, eat big fish included, when those constraints appear on the radar, let's take the most obvious kind of cliched one of the moment, which is to think about COVID. You know, our business is entirely driven by in-person workshops. So we show up and work collaboratively with clients. So COVID hits, no one's getting on planes, no one's traveling. We thought our business was doomed, right? And we had to pivot very quickly, as a lot of other people did, to put the processes that we use into Zoom calls. And there are attributes of that that didn't work as well. But there were some things that came out of that process that turned out to be beautiful constraints. Um, and so, you know, we we have we we're sort of um, dog fooding, eating our dog food in a way. But but that victim mindset that we initially had around, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to the business now? is what most of us will experience when a constraint shows up. You know, the boss walks down the hall, opens the door and goes, yeah, your budget just got cut 50%. Or, yeah, you just lost that client and you've got to find a new client to replace it within three. Whatever whatever the constraints are, we'll start from that victim place. And what we found in talking to all the great people that we interviewed as part of this book is that that's natural. That's a great place. That's an inevitable place to start with the victim mindset. But the way that you can move from that mindset to more of a transformational mindset is by understanding that there are steps to take. So mindset, method, and I'll walk you through the key things of the method in a minute, and then motivation. The It needs to be important to you to keep pushing. So mindset, method, and motivation is really the spine of the book. But I'll, if you like, Michelle, I'll start by just going into what's my first tip. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my first tip is, um, so when you're confronted with a constraint and you're not sure if it's beautiful or not, is to begin by asking a different kind of question. So the key tip here is ask a propelling question. And that involves coupling the constraint that you have, whether that's lack of budget, lack of know-how, lack of distribution, whatever it is, with an even bigger ambition. It might sound counterintuitive to do that, but we found finding that framing a simple propelling question, a big, bold ambition 
coupled to the constraint, brings the constraint into relationship with the goals of the business, the big ideas of the business. And it makes, it forces them into relationship and it forces you to at least tackle that constraint. So to give you, I mean, I'll give you, uh, this is going to seem like a, maybe an odd example to lead with, but um, so Summerland High School in British Columbia, um, there's a guy called Myron Dweck who runs uh, the leadership course at that high school who made a beautiful constraint, um, a part of the curriculum there. And he said that uh, every year that school has been doing a food drive. Um, and when COVID hit and lockdown happened, the kids just immediately said, well, you know, I guess we don't do a food drive this year. And he said, well, let's remember what we learned from a beautiful constraint. Um, where's the opportunity here? Uh, and the kids said, well, you know, we, we've got a bunch of constraints. We, we, we can't make contact with people, you know, and anyway, it forced them to rethink. So the way that they typically do a food drive. So, um, they, uh, leafleted a bunch of houses in the neighborhood saying, we'll be here on this specific day and we want these specific things. And we want you to leave them outside on the porch because we can't have any human contact. Um, and that allowed them to, A, uh, there was always food at the house when they showed up as opposed to the kind of random way they were doing it before where they just, you know, call, knock on doors and say, what's in the pantry you can spare? They got the right stuff, the right time, because uh, they, they weren't wasting any time catching up on the porch. They were able to cover twice the territory that they would normally cover. And they ended up um, collecting as much food in that year of lockdown than they collected in the entire three, three years uh, prior to that put together. And so it was the constraint that had forced them to re-examine um, all the practices that they typically use to do a food drive. And if, essentially they had a propelling question there, which was how can we do a food drive that's bigger and better than last year's when we can't make any human contact with people and it forced them to innovate in the process, if you like, and it, it was transformational for them. So, you know, nice, simple story about the power of embracing the constraint, put it in connection with in relationship with a bigger ambition, the best food drive ever, and use that as a basis for a new kind of conversation about how you would do a food drive. Yeah. And I, I love how it's, it's about obviously turning negative into positive, but actually forcibly joining the two together. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here's another simple telegraphic example. We worked with Audi quite a lot and uh, they told us this story about how in order to be a prestige luxury automobile mark around the world, particularly in the US, actually, they needed to win on the racetrack. But they're up against, you know, phenomenal uh, cars, Lamborghinis and Ferraris and whatnot on the track. So they had a propelling question that they gave to their engineering department, which is how can we win Le Mans when our cars are no faster than the competition? And they're kind of like little koans, aren't they? They're like little um, impossible briefs. And the engineering department, you know, they looked at that any any number of ways. We'll, we'll get better drivers. We'll make a lighter car. The solution turned out to be, and this is going back to the early part of the 2000s, is to run turbo diesel engines, which were more were not faster, but were more fuel efficient. And so they pitted less. And the Le Mans race is over 24 hours. And so by pitting, you know, half the amount that the fastest car on the track, they were never able to make up 
uh, the time that they'd lost by pitting more. And so Audi won that race like eight years in a row. It's incredible, transformational. But it was because they had that impossible brief, that propelling question, forcing the engineers to think differently about how to even compete that, that led them to this solution of the, the turbo diesel engine. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because the, the question is everything, right? Like the question creates your lens. If you don't have the supposedly right question, or you can ask a completely different question, obviously it can be down a completely different path. Yeah. And that's why I love this as a kind of piece of inspiration for planners, right? Because that's kind of what we do. We, we have to summarize a bunch of complex ideas about a brand into a single um, you know, single-minded statement on a creative brief, for example, the process of getting there is as important as anything else you do. And the process of developing propelling questions side by side with your clients, you know, you get to talk to them about, well, what are the big ambitions of the business? And that can be quite lofty and it can be quite granular. It depends on, you know, what altitude you want to operate with your client, but what are the, what are the ambitions of the business? Uh, that's a great conversation for strategists to have. And then what are the constraints that you face that, you know, these are real world things. Let's put those two things in relationship. Let's try a bunch of different propelling questions. The process of arriving at three or four propelling questions that if we could answer them, we would be have a transformational impact on our business is a, just a really rich uh, strategic uh, engagement for planners and um, clients to have together. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And, and to your earlier point about kind of getting further upstream, it seems like a natural tool to do that. Right. Right. Um, great. Well, wh what's your tip number two? So tip number two is, so you've got a propelling question. Um, they are, as I, I used the language a, a couple of minutes ago, impossible briefs. So at first glance, hard to solve and human beings being human beings, what you'll typically get when you sit down with a propelling question, you try to answer is you'll get a lot of can't because. Well, we can't do that, Mark, because. And those are very good reasons, historically part of the business, whatever. So tip number two is insist upon a can-if conversation. And that simply means we're going to begin every sentence with we can if. Um, we got this idea, again, the book is, is driven by research with the kind of clients that uh, our challenger brands and Colin Kelly is was the uh, head baker at Warburton's. He'd been a client of Adam's long, long ago in their careers and they'd stayed friends. And Colin gave us this language of, you know, we've got to have kind of, kind of conversations. So he talked about um, many things. It's quite a character, but he'd worked in Russia with Heinz and he'd worked on the ketchup bottling line and they were having a lot of breakage trying to run at the speeds they needed to produce the kind of volume that they needed. And uh, every time he sat down with his team, they were like, well, we can't do that, Colin, because he said, right, stop, stop. We're going to have a can-if conversation. I just want you to start with solutions, even if they seem a little kind of outlandish. So, well, we can if we slow down the line. Okay, great. We can if we source new glass that's stronger. Okay, great. We can if we introduce plastic bottles. And that turned out to be, and it seems we, a lot of the time these seem really obvious in hindsight, but it forced them to into a conversation about not being able to get the quality of glass they needed, therefore having to embrace plastic and actually that being really good for marketing purposes, but it reduced breakage to zero on the line. And so it took them a while to get to that insight. But um, yeah, running plastic down the, down the line <clears throat> helped them to 
to solve that problem, reduce wastage, in, increase speed, get more volume of ketchup out into the world. So it's really important as you begin to solve a propelling question to keep optimism and positivity alive in the conversation by deliberately asking the team to begin each solution with, well, we can if. And even if that's kind of outlandish ideas, going around, there's a, in the book, there's a can if map, which gives you nine prompts uh, that you can use to be, so we can if we substitute for, we can if we borrow money from, we can if we think of it as, that give you little sort of mind shift uh, 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 prompts to, to to start a new kind of can, can if conversation. And I think, you know, that just, makes it entertaining, makes it fun, makes it playful, keeps negativity out. And of course, at some point, you're going to have to assemble all the ideas on post-it notes and put them on the wall and get critical of them. But we found that just keeping optimism alive with a Kenneth conversation is um, a really important part of this process. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a really great way to, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but get everyone on board as well, right? Because I guess... Maybe in a workshop or a team dynamic, there's always going to naturally be some people who are more kind of optimistic than others, maybe, yeah. or, or have been at the, if, if they've been, for example, at a company for a long time, they might have some other kind of baggage about, you know, we tried that five years ago and, you know, whatever else. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Tip three. We're already halfway through. Three. Yeah. So tip three actually goes in a sense, it really belongs before the other two tips, but it makes sense to introduce it now. So tip three is to break your path dependent thinking. So this is about habits. All of us have habits of mind, have habits of process, have habits of procedure that tend to dictate and force us into particular paths that we become dependent on. So just to make it really obvious, I bet many of you, your planners listening to this will go, so, you know, a client comes in with a brief, what do you do? Or you typically go, let's do some qual, let's do some online uh, listening, let's do some buzz. You know, there are, there are certain um, sources of insight, inspiration tools that you use that you go to every time. And that's great. And, you know, if those are reliable, 90% of the time, keep using them. But in the face of a propelling question, that brings a difficult constraint into relationship with a bold ambition. Sometimes we need to look outside of uh, the normal, conventional, habitual ways we go about solving problems. And often these are invisible to us. We don't even know we have habits. The habits have us. And so there's a quite deliberate, conscious practice at the beginning of saying, what are the typical places that we, people we partner with, resources that we use? Uh, research stimulus that we tend to reach for that we typically use in any, and how might we flip those or break those conventions as a way of, you know, opening up a different kind of conversation. Um, so breaking path dependency is, is really critical. Here's, here's a little story that uh, might uh, land that. So um, years ago, Adam and I were uh, doing a project with a luxury, another luxury car brand. Um, and we'd taken them to the Four Seasons Hotel uh, in California to learn about how a luxury hotel brand treats its guests. And we toured the garden, we toured housekeeping, we talked to those folks. We end up in the laundry. And the laundry of a massive hotel like that one is a dark, damp, 
kind of gloomy place. And we've got, you know, 30 car dealers with us who've been touring. And uh, the young fellow who's running the uh, laundry pulls out a chair, stands on it and starts talking to the car dealers about um, the laundry and, and how important it is to make the hotel, you know, work and create a luxury environment. So on. we get back upstairs into the, into the meeting space and um, one of the dealers turns to the room and some of the Four Seasons leadership are there and he says, you know, I wish I could get the people who work in my back end as enthusiastic as that young man was in your laundry. And uh, the Four Seasons uh, manager stepped into the conversation and said, when I hear you say back end, I think of this. And he points at his behind. He goes, here, we call those people the heart of house. And a simple piece of language changes entirely how we think about them. So they're not the back end, the rear end, the forgotten piece. They're the heart of house. And he said, he said to the car dealer, he goes, how often do you visit the back end? And he, and he goes, well, I'm probably in, in the shop. I'm probably in the shop once or twice a week. He goes, if you rename them heart of house, You'd be in there every day. You'd know the names of the people. You'd know the names of their partners, their kids' birthdays. You'd treat those people like royalty because you know how critical they are to delivering a luxury experience. And of course, you know, we now know in the world of luxury automobiles that the experience that owners have dealing with the, with the mechanics, dealing with service is as important, if not more so in terms of creating loyalty and therefore possibly repeat purchase than anything that the so-called quarterbacks of the car dealership, the salespeople can have. And so, you know, sometimes it's embedded in our language and it was really, really interesting to watch a bunch of, you know, luxury car dealers kind of get that and change the language they use to describe a particular part of their organization. So it's often hard for them to see. It's often hard for all of us to see it. Um, you know, why, big fish. Why do you need to do this in person? Well, you can't do it online. That would be preposterous. Turns out, you can do some of it online. You know, so we've owned, we've had to abandon our own past dependencies in the last few years, and it's been transformational for the business. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, like where we started. Um, obviously, there were so many things that we took for granted and things that we just did on autopilot um, before the pandemic, and then having to rewrite and refigure out how we were going to do all of those things. Um, and and I feel like uh, in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of conversations about biases, and I wonder if biases isn't another way to think about these kind of path dependent these these habits because we all come in. You obviously subconsciously as well with these beliefs um, yes. that we often don't question. Yes. I mean, bias is a really great, probably a better word for, for it than habits. And the thing about bias, and you know, I think this is something that um, in the last few years with issues around race and gender that we've um, all been trying to come to terms with how we do a better job of that. The thing about bias is you don't know, you don't know it until it's pointed out to you. So I think, you know, obviously that's a much more serious uh, conversation about bias, but I think the same thing is true in lots of domains. And so giving each other on the team perhaps permission to point out our biases and say, you know, you tend to default to that. Is that deliberate or is that something and, or, and, and you're still valuable or is that something that we can change? I mean, you know, I, I had a client um, who set the organization a propelling question, his organization a propelling question of how do we launch five new brands 
in the time it typically takes us to launch one. And, you know, immediately there was this conniption in the room of, well, I mean, you need X amount of months to do the research and Y amount of months to do the product. And he said, yeah, yeah, but we're going to have to blow all those things up if we want to do this. And what are those? And, And they ended up being able to take a lot of really, um, I guess really quite good shortcuts through that process that they just hadn't been able to have an honest conversation about that, short of being challenged in that way to launch five new brands in, in the space of one. And, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to that conversation that would probably take longer than the time we have, Michelle, but it's, you know, just, just giving each other permission to name the biases um, and call out, are they still serving us? It's quite a refreshing way to have a conversation as well, I think, because it's not, it's not finger pointing. It's just, um, you know, it's almost like you, you just think questions you've never asked uh, right. because you've never had to. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating for, we, we spend a lot of time talking about this at the Big Fish at the moment because that requires um, a courageous conversation because you might be asking a junior planner to step up in front of the head of planning and go, yeah, but why do we do it that way? Is it, you know, and that requires the head of planning in this instance to be open, uh, allow themselves to be vulnerable in front of people that they've hired and maybe a training to listen newly with new ears to a new idea from somewhere else. And that's the dynamic in that conversation, the kind of cultural conditions that are going to be required for that to be a positive conversation are quite hard to put in place and it requires, you know, some real soft skills. And I don't know these days how good agencies are at trading hard skills, let alone soft skills. So that's a question back at you, I suppose. You think that's something that the industry is good at? Um, okay, so we've got asked different questions, specifically yeah. for common questions. Um, have Kenneth conversations, break path dependence. What's your tip number four? Tip number four is about uh, creating abundance. So, um, you know, if you don't have resources, you have to be resourceful. And one of the things that we're struck by, and again, this comes from an interview uh, with um, the folks that informed this book, is that, you know, typically brand managers, same is probably true of um, agency teams, they'll accept that the budget that they're given is the budget. When in fact, that's just the beginning of the budget. The budget is within touching distance around around you in any different number of ways. So, um, you know, I, we one of the interviews that we did for the book was uh, Porter Gale, who was the chief marketing officer of Virgin America at launch. Porter wrote a book called Your Network is Your Net Worth that really kind of captures this idea of abundance, right? Which is you're one, two, three degrees of separation away from exactly what it is that you need. So don't think of your budget as the thing that's given to you. Think of your budget as somewhere out there. You just need to figure out how to get access to it. So when they launched um, Virgin America, which I know, you know, in some ways that, that wasn't a success as a business, for lots of reasons I won't go into now, but as a marketing launch for the first few years, it was tremendously successful. And she had zero marketing budget. So I was like, how did you do it? She goes, well, you know, we sat down, we said, okay, we don't have budget, but what do we have? What's our biggest asset? Our biggest asset is these airplanes. What are these airplanes? Well, they are venues in the sky, potentially. They are sampling 
locations in the sky. So they went to do a partnership with uh, Victoria's Secret, where Victoria's Secret does, you know, fashion shows. As you, as you know, it's been much in the news <laughs> recently. This is going back a while, right? But um, yeah. <laughs> we do fashion shows uh, twice a year. We need to get our models down to the, these places in LA. We'll do a partnership with with Virgin America to get all the models down there. But we'll run a fashion show in the sky, the first ever. So you've got supermodels walking down the aisle wearing pajamas. Everybody on the plane is pulling out their phones, taking pictures sharing in social media, that thing created uh, an enormous amount of um, um, eyeballs um, and it didn't cost Virgin America much money, but they were using the asset they got and Victoria's Secret was happy to provide all the rest of it. They, they, um, they talked to Google, another neighbor of theirs in Silicon Valley and said, uh, you know, what can we do? They wanted to show off um, onboard Wi-Fi. So they were one of the first airlines to um, put all the planes in the sky that were connected. And Google was launching Chromebooks at the time. So they said, at SFO, you'll pick up a Chromebook, you'll take it on board the airplane, you'll use our Wi-Fi, you'll use the Chromebook, you'll email your buddies, well, guess where I am? I'm 30,000 feet in the sky working on a Chromebook. You'll drop it off at the other end. So a sampling opportunity for Google that also drove a lot of, you know, um, marketing communications through people emailing each other from the sky. So there are all these kind of clever ways of gaining access to resource that uh, she needed to make her airline famous in the early days that didn't cost her a lot of money. And she wouldn't have actually had to do that kind of creative thinking had she had a bigger budget. And so sometimes we talk about in economics, there's this concept of the resource curse, right? So if you think about... (laughs) to be politically correct here and not necessarily name certain countries. But if you are endowed with a colossal amount of carbon underground um, and your economy becomes entirely reliant on that, it tends to lead to sometimes underdeveloped economies because you become addicted to that particular resource. Whereas the country of Taiwan, for example, another story in the book, which Thomas Friedman described as a barren little island in a typhoon-infested sea, um, very few resources actually on Thailand, but have created this dynamic economy because they've really leaned into building human capital on the island and education. And there's a, a long story about that. So creating abundance is about this idea of sitting down and figuring out who has exactly what you want And what is it that you can offer them in a kind of mutually beneficial hustle of 21st commerce? We'll trade you our planes for your supermodels. We'll trade you our planes for your Chromebooks. And and there's a way for small brands with small budgets to develop much bigger impact as a consequence of having to think like an entrepreneur, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think that oftentimes we don't think about what we have and how it can be seen uh, or how it can be valued by others. So, I mean, do, do you, how do you go about uh, identifying what those resources might be? Is it simply asking those types of questions as to, well, what do we have and, and how do we reframe that? How could that be packaged in a way of value to someone else? Yeah, that, well, I mean, uh, there's a there's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to a, a, a set of tools for identifying what your assets are that you may be not seeing as assets. You know, I mean, we had a 
conversation um, about till receipts with one of our clients, right? You're, you're printing paper every time someone checks out and that's the medium. And what can we do with that medium that maybe you've not thought about doing before? So sometimes it's about, it's very similar in some ways to path dependency. So doing an audit of all the assets that you have and then flipping that, reframing that, what is that? It's not an airplane. It's a runway in the sky. What could that represent? So getting clear on what your assets are and you have way more than you think. And it's a really liberating experience to sit down and go, well, what actually is the car dealership? Well, it's a venue. Okay. So after hours in that car dealership, and some of these, you know, if you look at an Audi dealership, it's like a space age. I mean, they call them hangers, right? They're, they're kind of um, designed to look like um, airport lounges in, in some ways. So that's a venue. You could do, what can you do with that venue? You could host TED Talks. You could host cocktail parties. You could host fashion shows. So every single asset that you have in your business and your brand can be seen differently. And that's a creative act, right? That's why, again, this is really great for the kind of creative people to the work that work at agencies to just go in and have a different kind of conversation with your clients about, we are going to create for you this afternoon, 3x the amount of resources you currently have by taking a different view of what you've got. Then we're going to flip into a conversation about who has what we need so, you know, if you're a virgin and you know that what we need is a thousand photographs on Instagram of the inside of our cockpit because it's purple mood lighting and black leather seats and people will see that. We need to get photos. How do we get people to take photos of what's happening in the cabin? Well, we need theater. We need drama. We need surprise. Who's going to do that for us? And again, some creative thinking will get you to, I think they broke uh, season four of, uh, what was that show at the time? I can't remember. The, um, there was some big show on HBO that was, uh, uh, very memeable at the time. And they, you know, they, they went to them and said, uh, entourage, it was entourage. Can we get Richard Branson in a photo op with your guys? It's kind of glamorous. That's we're glamorous. You're glamorous. Um, and let's use, let's launch that, um, on our, uh, planes. Cause we've got seatback TVs. Um, your benefit, because we'll get the benefit of publicity of Richard Branson in a photo shoot with your guys, and we'll benefit because we'll get to talk about Seatback TV. So, you know, knowing, I being a, being quite creative and clever about identifying the kinds of partners that you want to go and do business with, showing up with your sense of, we're Virgin America, we've got lots of resource, we've got lots of assets that are valuable to you, and here's, and just doing storytelling about those assets. What we want from you is X. Um, that's, that's how you can, you know, this is what biz dev people do in the Valley all the time. And it's bringing that into challenger brands as a core competency, as a way of um, thinking about how to make constraints beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um and tip number five, I mean, I, I like all the different ways that you're, you've given us to think about this. It feels like it could lead to some really fruitful uh, ideas. So what's your, what's your final tip? Yeah, it's my final tip. So I think it's, um, this is about personal reflection. So tip number five is do an audit of your own mindset and or the mindset, collective mindset of your organization. So what I mean by that is, you know, take an honest appraisal of what is your own relationship to constraints? 
Um, because most often when I'll stand up on a, on a stage somewhere and, and make a speech about this, um, the first starting point of people is, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not very good. I'm not very creative. Um, and actually, if you sat down with them each one by one and said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about beautiful constraints in your own personal life. Can you, t- can you think of a time in your own bio where something quote unquote bad happened and it turned out to be a blessing in disguise? And it's almost a universal feature of a human being that they've got a story like that and they'll tell it to you and it'll be a great story. Um, you know, for instance, um, a woman, it's very, and a very simple story. A woman told me about, she'd been training for a marathon. It was a third marathon. I think, uh, she was trying to break a certain time. She got injured two months before the race. She thought it was off. Her physio said, you know, you can still put in the miles in the pool. You're not putting as much weight on your injury. It'll heal. And she found that training in the pool was so beneficial for the rest of her body that she was able to compete in the race and put up a good time. And so it was the, you know, the constraint of getting an injury that forced her into the pool that gave her another training modality that she really enjoyed and helped up, ended up improving her uh, performance. So do an audit of yourself. Ask yourself, honestly, am I typically a victim? How long does it take me to get to this kind of transformational place? And find a personal story that you can can connect to or find a story in your organization, in the history of your brand, the history of your agency, where actually the constraints have turned out to be blessings in disguise and forced innovation into your own personal life, your own professional life, the, the history of your agency and get used to telling those stories because those stories are the things you can go to time and time again. When something bad happens, you can go, guys, Okay, let's allow ourselves 10 minutes in the victim mentality. We can all moan about it, be cathartic, actually very valuable. The research says very useful to get that out there, clear it out. And then let's remind ourselves that we've been here before. We've got stories where we can actually use the constraints to be, to transform our fortunes and make them beautiful. Remind ourselves of those stories. And from that place, it becomes easier to have you know, what is clearly a very challenging conversation about how to make constraints beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and do you, because when you told the beginning of the story, you talked about how do we use kind of the challenger mindset uh, towards innovation, I think. And and mm-hmm. so do you use these for like innovation workshops and things? You're doing like if, if, if Unilever, whoever says to you, what's the next shampoo that I should create? Um, are, are these the kind of the steps that you go through? Yeah, I mean, it shows up in our work in, in, in different kind of ways. So sometimes we'll show up to do, you know, a brand strategy positioning workshop and it's clear that there are constraints and we'll, we'll bake, um, a conversation into the process around how do we, how do we think that? What, do, what are the constraints that force us to think differently? Like, like the surf example, like, um, I mean, there's another very quick example that I bet a lot of people, uh, we'll remember here. So Newcastle Brown Ale, we went through a strategy workshop to position that brand. And Charles Van Ess, who was the brand manager, a Dutch guy at the time, said, I want to be on the Super Bowl, which was preposterous because his entire marketing budget was less than the production budget of a commercial. And he said, yeah, 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 but I want to be, let's, let's have that as our ambition. I want to be on the Super Bowl. And he was um, very shortly after that working with Droga 5 and, you know, credit to Droga for figuring out, if you remember, there was a spot that they did where 
Charles himself did not have the budget, but they went to 50 other tiny brands who all wanted, would have loved to have been on the Super Bowl and said, give us a little bit of your budget each. And they created this amalgamation spot that was centrally about Newcastle brand, but about all 50 of the other brands too. And they got to run it in one, I think it ran in Phoenix, but he got his, met his ambition. So um, why was I telling that story about from being a good one? Yeah. So yeah, it shows up, you know, sometimes in random ways, but we'll, we do structure a process with a client where we'll spend a couple of days with them saying in advance, we need to think about what the propelling questions are. So with Charles Schwab, for example, we've done this across their business. What are the propelling questions of this division, uh, of this business unit? Um, can we now create a, a one day, two day can if conversation to address those uh, propelling questions, come up with answers of those propelling questions, and then put those ideas that we create onto the onto the um, roadmap. Sometimes it's new products. Sometimes it's just new ways that the sales department calls or they think about distribution, for example. So um, everything from, you know, a lot of those Schwab folks I followed up with and I said, what's, you know, here we are a year later, what's stuck from that? And they said the stickiest piece of your process by far is the Caniff conversation. And sometimes all we do is on a Friday lunchtime, we'll bring in some Chinese food and we'll sit down in the, you know, photocopier room at the back of the building in a, in a shrub branch, for example. And we'll say, there's a propelling question. It might be something kind of mundane, but we're going to have a Caniff conversation for an hour about that and see what new ideas we can create. So you know, it shows up everything from, from that, from the, from the brown bag lunch on a, on a Friday lunchtime to major strategic engagements that we have with clients. Yeah. I, the thing that gets me really excited is this ambition part. I mean, you know, we, other organizations, you, you call them big, hairy, audacious goals or whatever it is. I mean, I feel like it just immediately opens up and gets everyone excited about the opportunity, the potential. I and mean, when you talk about ending up on the Super Bowl, I mean, that, so every marketer would dream of that. Most marketers would never even voice that out loud because it would sound so ridiculous. But if you really do put your energy towards that, uh, yes. I think you have some really interesting outcomes. Yeah, that's the brilliance of Charles. You know, and I think there's a, there's another. This will be my last story, Michelle. Because I'm sure we've we've gone quite long, but it's a story actually about um, I think YouTube at the in preparing for the Sundance Film Festival. I want to say it was 2017. They set the creative community this task of telling a story in six seconds, right? Because they, that was the, the amount of pre-roll that they wanted people to watch. You know, how can you tell a story in six seconds so that a human being will not immediately hit skip ad, but want to watch the whole thing? And it was that constraint of six seconds that, I mean, they said it was just, I haven't seen all of the, all of the ideas that were presented, but it was phenomenally rich. And the Martin agency's Geico, unskippable spot, which won everything that year, I think it can, was a result of that. So, you know, there's an example from our, very clear example from our own industry of how a time constraint can actually turn out to be um, the impetus for incredible creativity and led to to that spot for Geico, which apparently um, was pretty effective as well in terms of uh, clicks and getting people through to, to the Geico site. So, yeah. It reminds me, I don't know if it was Droger, someone said it, where they said, you know, why don't we always just write propositions on our creative briefs? Why can't they be a question? 
And mm. a question maybe, or even you added as a section, kind of posed as a challenge like that. Because I think that we inherently, I mean, I get excited by a challenge. I mean, I think about even the hours, a ridiculous number of hours that I was spending on something like Wordle, you know, like a couple months ago when everyone else was as well. It was, it, it was dumb, but it was fun. And it was, it was a challenge. And so it got you interested and excited. And so if you had a challenge like that, how do you tell a story in six seconds? Or how do you get this brand that has no budget on the Super Bowl or in the Super Bowl? Um, I think it immediately kind of gets your forcibly gets your creative juices flowing unless you're just completely boring. You have no yeah, interest. Yeah, well, you know, I yeah, I mean, a client told me that, um, you know, sometimes when you, there's an interesting conundrum for Eat Big Fish here because, you know, I, I know for sure um, that if we go into workshop engagement with clients and they're asking us for uh, how, to, how to create a challenger brand strategy, working with them, their team, we will get there within X number of days. When you've got really um, difficult propelling questions they don't always yield their answers in, in a couple of days. But the client said, we've got them on post-it notes in the office. And every day I come in and I look at that propelling question. I go, one day we're going to figure out a really great answer to it. And if we do, and when we do, it will, it will be really powerful. And just seeing that, you know, the way the mind works is it's constantly working on background memory, thinking about ways to solve that. And you might be driving home, listening to a ra- the radio and some news item will come and you go, ah. There it is. Is a great one. Okay, one more. I promise this is my last one. No worries. So I was talking to, you know, I live in California. We have uh, forest fires uh, at the moment, really sad. And um, um, it ruins the crop. So I do a lot of work in the wine business. And I was talking to the CEO of a a winery here, who will remain nameless. And she was saying, you know, we're going to have to write off uh, millions of dollars worth of grape. Cabernet grape this year because it's got smoke taint. And I was like, wow, you know, my instinct here as the beautiful constraint guy is to think about what, what's the opportunity there. And we talked about it for about 10 minutes on the phone and couldn't figure it out. Literally the next day I pick up, I don't know, it was like, it was on online somewhere that, um, the Crimson Wine Group in California had the same issue and they partnered with Hangar One Vodka to make a vodka out of grapes. The distillation process takes all the smoke taint out of it. So now they've got an asset that they're making a completely new product. And they launched this brand and, you know, uh, all the proceeds went to helping to rehouse families who'd lost their homes uh, during that and support firefighters and so on. A great example of a beautiful constraint. And it's it could yeah. be potentially transformational for the state of California. It's going to have a lot more. You know, we're going to need to get into the vodka business en masse if we can't use our grapes to make wine, great wines out of for, you know, occasionally. And that that's that's a great example. And of- that's finding a silver lining in climate change. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. If only it was that easy. <laughs> Great. Well, I, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and uh, we will leave your um, LinkedIn notes on the on the show. Uh, sorry, we'll leave your LinkedIn details on the show notes so people can reach out to you um, should they have any more questions. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining today's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, share the episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 